You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where Ruby is pouring the good stuff tonight. I I feel like she knows that it's going to be a great show. I hope you'll pull up a chair. I'm your host Matthew Rushing and we have some fun in store for you. Just psychedelic awesome fun for you guys. And uh, before we jump to that, just want to remind everyone that the 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network. We have 20 different shows on the network so if you haven't tried those out check out itunes.com slash trek fm you can find all the shows there you can also check out trek.fm that's our website so many different things i mean we cover every single part of star trek from all the different series Uh, we've got our friends mission log going through every single series every single episode of star trek we don't know when they're going to be done, and they might actually turn into androids by that point. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and if you want behind the scenes of Star Trek, we've got that too. We've, we've got different opinions. I mean, this is the place to be. So check out Trek.fm. Um, I'd also like to thank, we, we just got a new five-star review on iTunes from Davis Grayson. Uh, and he said, do you love Doctor Who, Star Wars, Star Trek, and other sci-fi movies? Then this is the podcast for you. In other words, it's not the podcast you need. It's the podcast oh, well, you deserve. Sad, Davis. So thank you so much, Davis. That that means a lot to us. And uh, we are running a uh, review promotion right now. So if you do review us on iTunes, anybody that has all throughout the history of the show, you are entered to win a $50 gift card. So go over and review us on iTunes. Give us a star rating. We love that. We love hearing what you guys think. And uh, if um, in October, if you have reviewed us, you'll be entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card plus the Eagle Moss USS Vengeance from Norm. So we have, I think, just a fantastic panel tonight to talk about the man from UNCLE. And let me introduce them to you. First, we have Alice Baker from Educating Geeks. Alice, so good to have you back in the 602 Club. I'm always happy to be in the 602 Club, especially tonight with you guys drinking some scotch. I like it. Yeah, I I wasn't lying. Ruby poured the good stuff. She spared no expense. It's like we're in Jurassic Park or something, uh, but we're not. <laughs> John Champion, it is so good to have you back here in the 602 uh, did Ruby get you something special? You know, uh, I uh, to be honest here, I uh, I have come off a couple of really heavy weeks. Um, I had a week in Vegas for Star Trek, and then I had one day of downtime, and then I was in uh, San Diego for Tiki Oasis, also Star Trek related, oddly enough. Um, so tonight it's tea. Tonight it needs to be tea <laughs> because my body would not be able to process anything else. <laughs> it's not the tea that you need it's the tea, it's that, the you tea that i want that's yeah. right <laughs> yeah. well i'm i'm so glad that you're here with us to talk about the man from uncle and then of course guys you can hear that it's norm norm welcome back to the 602 club i love the 602 club it's my home away from my other home away from my other home and <laughs> alice is right uh, ruby has poured us some fantastic spirits tonight 
And um, because I'm drinking a non-aged scotch, if we were in 2151, it would still be perfectly acceptable to drink. So I toast <laughs> all of you listening to the show because I'm, I'm just I'm thrilled beyond to be with the company that we have tonight. Fantastic. Well, this is going to be fun. Um, you know, I don't know about a lot of the listeners, but I'm I'm thinking that a few of them at least will be like me and the boat that you have heard from the man from uncle but you may have never really seen the original show and i remember when this movie first got announced and john i think you were on talking bond Mm -hmm. with us and you were just so excited because this is this is a thing this is a show that you really love and so i kind of wanted you and alice i know both of you have some history a mission history with the man from uncle and and kind of give us a little bit of background about this show for people who might not be familiar with it i mean even somebody like me so it's kind of hard to overstate um but the the note that i took was this you know in the mid 60s you had the Beatles, you had James Bond, and you had the Man from Uncle. I mean, it was that big, and it's kind of amazing to me that it has all but disappeared from the pop culture landscape. You know, um, it, it ran for four seasons, 105 episodes, four very inconsistent seasons. They all had a very distinct feel to them. Um, but Robert Vaughn and David McCollum, who played. Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin on this show. They were massive, massive pop culture stars. Just huge. You know, every teen magazine had a picture of David McCollum on it because he became the heartthrob. And, um, you know, one of the things that I found most fun and most interesting is that in the mid-60s, visiting dignitaries at the U.N., the actual U.N. building in New York, asked to see the uncle headquarters because they thought this was oh, a real yeah. thing. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like when people go to Dallas and they're like, where's JR? Right. <laughs> right. Like through the tailor shop and everything. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So it, now I, I knew of the show uh, going back to the 80s. Well, actually, a little bit before that, just because I kind of always had this love of pop culture and spies. And even though I had not seen The Man from Uncle, I knew of it. And then when TBS started rerunning it, Ted Turner was a fan of the show, by the way. TBS started rerunning The Man from Uncle in the 80s. And I was right at that age. I, I was the perfect age as, you know, like a 12, 13, 14 year old kid as that first generation of fans who found it in the 60s. And I just loved it because it was so much fun and it was so cool. And the actors in it are wonderful. It's so much about the personality of those two, of Vaughn and McCollum. Um, but, you know, I, I'm in the same boat as a lot of you where I, I talk to people now and I say, hey, I'm really excited about The Man from Uncle coming out. What's that? They have no idea that this was a show. It's interesting to me, the shows that do have kind of some staying power as a name. Clearly we're all here because we know and love Star Trek. And that's a show that has a tremendous staying power, but even, you know, uh, uh, lost in space, Um, maybe even a show like laugh in has better name recognition now than a show like man from uncle. I would hope that some of that would start to turn around. What with the movie being out. Um, But yeah, it's, 
you kind of have to understand that this is huge. This is 50 years of fandom in the making, but it's been this quiet fandom for, you know, the majority of that time. Uh, but this was a massive cultural movement at the time that it was on. It was appointment TV. You had to be there to see The Man from Uncle. And not to mention all the toys, and there was a spinoff show, The Girl from Uncle. It didn't do so well. It wasn't so good. Um, and they very cleverly released eight movies. They had shot some of these episodes in such a way that they kind of re-edit and release them as movies worldwide. Because, of course, you didn't really have a good syndication plan for TV shows in the 60s. So why not release these movies overseas as features, get some new fans, and, well, some more revenue to keep the show going. So um, that that's uncle history in a nutshell. The other important thing to mention here is that, you know, the pitch for The Man from Uncle was four simple words. James Bond on TV. That was it. 1964, we'd already had three Bond films, Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. Um, producers Norman Felton and Sam Rolfe uh, had uh, consulted with Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming had to kind of back out in terms of actually consulting on the show, but he gave him one important thing, Napoleon Solo. That name is from Goldfinger. So with that, they were able to sort of get up and running and, uh, and get the show going. So there you go. Just in case Uncle people didn't know, that is Han Solo's, <laughs> you know, predecessor. That's why he's so cool. Well, now wait, right? is is it his ancestor or that's a good because question. it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, a galaxy far away, far, far away. Yeah, I guess it depends on temporal mechanics. Yeah, yeah. but he's that cool. Yeah, yeah exactly. Both of he them are that, that cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, what about you? What's uh, your history with uh, the man from Uncle? My guess is that John and I are very similar in age. Uh, I watched the show on TBS in the eighties. I wasn't quite as young as he was, uh, but I-, I guess, as he pointed out, TBS loves spy shows. So there was I Spy, which also was made into a not-so-great movie, but I watched I Spy, I watched The Man from Uncle, I watched The Saint, and I watched the original Avengers. Um, you know, the one with John Steed and yes. Emma Peel. So I watched all Diana of Diana Rigg. Yeah. Um, and as he pointed out, David McCollum, I was in love with that man. He did this funny little sideways run when he was on the show. It was adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I wish everybody could see your like <laughs> movement. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it was. I mean, it's when I first learned that I was uh, invited to chat with you guys about this. I actually thought we were going to talk about the original series because I hadn't heard that it, it was a movie remake. So I actually went back and started to watch the original series, which, you know, being a woman in the 21st century now, I was a little, oh, that's right. It was the 60s. Um, but I, I read the books. They had those thin little books like they used to with Doctor Who, where they would be basically just a recant of the show. I used to collect those at secondhand bookstores. I mean, I just loved this show. Loved it. Norm, um, 
did you have any history at all with uh, the man from Uncle? Did you catch it on anything or? Oh yeah, I mean being a being a fan like we all are of the spy genre and especially of that particular era of the 1960s when you had just you know that James Bond just had that. He had the formula down, especially when Goldfinger came out. That was the secret formula. It's pretty much like all the stars aligned. You were looking for all those different properties. And again, the, the producers like Norman Felton being able to collaborate with Ian Fleming. Very smart move to get what John said, the four, the four magic words to bring James Bond on TV. And you just, I mean, I w- obviously wasn't there for the original run, but there are these really interesting things called reruns when we were younger and there were stations that created these things called like Nick at Night or TV Land where they would bundle up shows like this. They would bundle up Gunsmoke and Bonanza and a lot of these pop culture shows that you guys were talking about from before. So within those blocks of TV, Man From U.N.C.L.E. was shown and I was always a big fan of Robert Vaughn because Robert Vaughn always guest starred a lot in the um, 80s shows like Knight Rider or The A-Team um, he was that really awesome, terrible villain in Superman 3. So when you see him pop up, especially at the age that you are watching him in terms of real time, you want to look at, oh, where have I seen him before? I've seen him on TV, I think. And then all of a sudden you start talking to your friends. You're like, well, of course, you saw him in Man from Uncle. He was Napoleon Solo. I'm like, he's not Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> That's Harrison Ford. I'm I like, know <laughs> it. Like, I, I, I know these things. So, but then you start watching it, and you start finding different avenues of of ex- exploring those genres. And it was great to see that on TV because you wanted to continue that spy flavor in those two to three year period interim periods when James Bond was out of the theaters. And I always felt that there was this great this great relationship between McCallum and Robert Vaughn in that same almost competitive way that you had that same relationship with Shatner and Nimoy because Shatner was the star, but Nimoy got most of the love. And I always felt that that was the same way. It's like, you know, Vaughn was kind of like the star, quote unquote, but McCallum got all the love because he had the mod hair and the mod clothing. And he had just that certain je ne sais quoi about him that that female fans really loved. He was so sexy. Like Solo was the straight guy and Kuryakin was this international, dangerous, Russian wild card that everyone loved. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up with it much the same as, um, as, as most of us did, I guess, in the 1980s when the reruns were really big. My favorite thing to do in this show is to not be anywhere near the expert. And I love being on a show where I'm like, I'm the newbie. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often for me. I think the, the one of the few times that's happened is when we talked about the original Battlestar Galactica and... I didn't really know anything about it that much. And and the way I came to this movie was the fact that Superman himself, Henry Cavill, got cast as Napoleon Solo. And that's how I came into this. And I really liked him as Superman. I thought, oh, that he's in a new spy movie. And and then I saw the trailer and I was like, oh dude, this I'm totally sold because I'm a huge Bond fan. And this kind of thing is just, you know, it's right in my wheelhouse. So I think it's really interesting when we we look at the history of this. Um, this is a movie that's been in development hell for a really long time. And in fact, George Clooney had been attached. Uh, Quentin Tarantino was director for a while. And then, honestly, the list of actors that almost played Napoleon Solo is insane. 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ryan Gosling, Channing Tatum, uh, Ewan McGregor, Robert Pattinson, Matt Damon, Christian Bale, Michael Fassbender, Bradley Cooper, Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe, Chris Pine, Ryan Reynolds, and John Hamm. I mean, all of those people. And and then, of course, Tom Cruise was signed, and he was going to be in the movie. Uh, so this could have been a completely different film if not for these people. Um, and I wanted to ask you guys, because to me, this is is the, the spies in this movie. The, the people that they got for the film are what made it what it was to me. And I'll show my hand. I think this movie is fantastic. So it's because of these people. And so I wanted to ask, especially you guys who have a history with this, what did you think of Henry Cavill and especially Arnie Hammer taking over these really iconic roles? How did they play for you? For me, uh, Henry Cavill does an amazing job playing Napoleon Solo and having the same sort of, I don't know even how to put it, sort of the way he delivers his lines and this sort of um, almost I don't care kind of, I don't know, atmosphere around him when he's talking and dealing with things. I think he plays it really close to the way that Robert Vaughn played it. And it really worked for me. I'm an I'm a Elia Kurak and gal, though. So uh, Army Hammer... Next time, if we can get him with his shirt off, that would work for me. <laughs> but overall, it was really awesome. Uh, Norman, put your shirt back on. Oh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> hey. Hey, Ruby. No more for him. Jeez. Cut him uh, off. <laughs> what about you, John? Um, it, the casting, I think, was the most difficult thing for me coming into this because there's a lot of good people that you just read on that list. And by the way, uh, it's worth backtracking just a little bit to say that in 1983, there was the made-for-TV Return of the Man from U.N.C.L.E., the 15 Years Later Affair. And it was it, it was a made-for-TV movie. And they had hoped that there would be <laughs> maybe a new series to come from that. Um, maybe the man from uncle, the next generation. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Right. And maybe okay. we were lucky that we were spared that. Um, but it did star, uh, McCollum and Vaughn in their roles. And, um, but ever since then, it was always kind of on the back burner of like, Oh, when's there going to be a new thing, a new uncle and what will it be? And, um, I have spent a lot of time on man from uncle message boards and, and chat rooms and Facebook pages more recently. And, um, you know, 15 years ago, I thought, man, you know, Kyle McLaughlin would be a great Napoleon solo. He's got that oh, yeah. look, you know, and he's got kind of the quirky, fun vibe, you know. Um, and I'm glad that Tom Cruise didn't get it because mm -hmm. he's in his 50s. And not that that should count him out from being in certain roles. He's wonderful at what he does. But I wanted to see Man From U.N.C.L.E. cast a little younger Partly selfishly, because I wanted there to be more men from Uncle down the road, you know. Um, I think what we ended up with with is absolutely great. Uh, I love Hugh Grant as Waverly. I wanted more of Hugh Grant as Waverly. Um, For a special agent, you're not having a very special job. Yeah, that's, yes, <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, uh, Henry Cavill as Napoleon Solo 
he is channeling Napoleon Solo, uh, or channeling Robert Vaughn as Napoleon Solo, the same way that Carl Urban was channeling D. Exactly. Kelly as yeah. Dr. Exactly. McCoy. Exactly. You yep. know what? And it's funny because for a bunch of filmmakers and actors who said they never saw the original show, they're liars because there are so many little hints and little tips of the hat here, some very subtle, some very over the top, that just made me think, no, no, no. You got the original show. And you were smart about the things that you wanted to change and some of the things that needed to change, but kept just enough of that undercurrent in there of the original that that I was kind of sold and on board with it. Now, Ilya Kuryakin is the most changed out of all the characters, I think. Um, If you go back to the original, Norman Felton said, before this show was ever made, that uh, Ilya Kuryakin was a hulking Russian, kind of a brutish character. David McCollum is not that. He, he, he's a, a little guy, and he's kind of sly and, and quirky and very quiet. This is a different take on Ilya Kuryakin, but I love this take on Ilya Kuryakin because there are other character traits that I think tie him, tie Army Hammer's version closely to David McCollum's uh, version. Just not maybe all the things that some other fans wanted out of it. Uh, but I think the casting is just right on the mark. And and like I said, it makes me want to see more of those actors in those roles. I think the way that fans either appreciated or criticized the way that Star Trek 2009 was cast, I think it's the same way that Uncle fans, and John, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong and stepping out of line here, it's the way that Uncle fans accepted the way that these characters were cast because for me knowing or having a cursory knowledge of uncle i felt that spiritually that these characters were cast correctly yeah and especially the very first time that i saw cavill's napoleon solo in the very first preview i was like wow (laughs) it it felt right just like carl urban felt right as mccoy even more so than chris pine as kirk yeah because i felt more of a spiritual inheritance of the role right um and, and that was really important for Napoleon Solo's part. And I agree, I didn't feel quite the same kind of connection with Army Hammer as Kuryakin because Kuryakin had that certain suaveness to him. And I'm, that's not saying that he won't get that if we get a sequel, which I desperately hope we do. Mm-hmm. But I felt that they were, they were really paying a lot of respect to the roles because I really do think they did their homework. You can't channel characters like that without understanding where those characters came from or else they would be just completely a new entity of character. And you really can't do that because you have 50 years riding on this. You need to bring in the fans from those 50 years to at least make the film a cursory success. Uh, I would say, you know, some of my favorite things about Ilya Kuryakin from the original are when he actually doesn't have dialogue. Um, There's an episode of the original series called The Never Never Affair, and uh, stars Barbara, well, co-stars Barbara Feldon as just a, a, a secretary at Uncle, and she wants something exciting to do, so they give her Mr. Waverly's humidor, and uh, Napoleon tells her this is a top-secret mission, and you have to follow this plan and this plan and this plan and go up and get his humidor refilled. And when he realizes that he screwed up, and now Thrush thinks that she's on a mission, he stands in Waverly's office explaining how he screwed this up. David McCollum has no lines as Ilya Kuryakin, but the camera stays on him just with this look of utter disdain 
disappointment <laughs> and shock. And it's great. And it's moments like that that made me think, okay, even if Army Hammer isn't playing the same suave kind of character that you're talking about, Norman, it's these moments of of character conflict and sort of knowing that these guys are on different pages that really sold it for me. So sorry for the interruption, but I, I just no. want to interject because I think that we're on the same page there about that. No, and this is again, you're 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 far and away the expert here, on, you know, on, on Uncle. Um, but from what I took away, I really thought that they cast the male leads very well, and just selfishly, I could have seen timothy dalton mm. or perhaps i'm not gonna like throw a lot of james bond names out there but <laughs> as waverly because that's just kind of like it's a nice spiritual successor again to the waverly role um but i really do have to say that as as strongly as they cast the male characters i think just as importantly and almost um in equal measure the female leads were just as strong i think alicia vikander um as as Gabby Teller was absolutely fantastic. And if she wanted to solidify her role in terms of being able to hold up her character with the best of these male characters, wrestling with Kuriakin is probably one of those just <laughs> is one of those so is one of those moments wrestle. in the movie where like, okay, she can hold her own literally against these guys. And I thought that was really neat. I loved her um from Ex Machina. I thought she was great in that, and uh, she's she was just she's one of those type of actresses that I think really kind of morphs into not just the role but into the ensemble as well. And I thought she did a really good job there. Well, you know me, I love those icy Hitchcock blondes. So um, <laughs> as much... I, I haven't heard that from you. Guys, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I love Elizabeth Debicki as uh, Victoria in this. She, but but both women are really strong in this. Um, I've seen and heard other reviews that uh, are maybe not so happy with the two women in this, but I, I thought they were exactly what they needed to be for this kind of movie. I love when the two guys are in the shop and they're arguing over what (laughs) belt goes with what. I mean, it was like, it was, it was almost, they, they should have introduced themselves as Bond. Yeah. Bond. Right. You know, because they're both doing that same thing where they're arguing about things they really shouldn't know probably the too much about like women's fashion and yet they're experts on it apparently. And it just, it was awesome to watch those two masculine men arguing over which belt she should wear was I that yeah I mean I think every woman wants to take them shopping now so I want to take them shopping but that, so. that goes back to something that I, I really felt strongly about in this movie where I understand where they need to take the spy genre now with Mission Impossible and with Spectre with the Daniel Craig movies and and moving forward but the one thing I really truly love about this movie is that we get a return to that 60s kitsch of that particular gentleman spy being able to look at something and say like, oh yes, that's a Alexander Sinclair Glenn Check suit. Of course I'm going to wear that. <laughs> Why wouldn't I wear that? And I was like, no, the, the, the Dior does not go with that cut. You know, That's what made James Bond James Bond, especially Connery's Bond. And that's what made the 1960s spy genre that particular flavor. It's something that we as... And, and I don't mean to insult anybody here, but we as kind of like normal human beings who go about our daily lives, we aren't steeped in that type of, of perfection that where we can 
core, we can pull up that arcane knowledge and become that different character because we know all these different types of liquors and wines or different types of cultural dynamics or different types of fashion. That's what these people do. That's what makes them superhuman without superpowers. And I love that about this, this particular part of the spy genre um, in, in, that, in that era. It's important to note, uh, well, a couple of things, by the way, uh, Matthew, going back to the fashion thing, in the Return movie, um, Ilya had moved on to become a fashion designer oh, okay. with the House of Vanya was his, uh, his fashion company. Um, but Norman, you're, you're nailing what I think is the important takeaway from this about this movie and about The Man from U.N.C.L.E. in general. In 1964, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was not a parody of James Bond. It was not a parody of the spy genre. But what it was was this piece of 60s kind of kitsch, kind of pop culture that was a lighter, more fun take on it. You know, uh, our man Flint was a parody. Flash forward 30 years and uh, uh, Austin Powers is a parody of that stuff. Well, even David Niven's Casino Royale was parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you mm-hmm. go. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. But but Man from Uncle was not. It, it was a lighter, more lighthearted approach to that. They By the time they got into the third season, they kind of ran off the rails and it was more parody. But when Uncle was at its best, the humor just came from the characters and not making jokes. And that's what I love about that fashion scene. I'm so glad you brought it up, uh, Matthew, is that that was the scene of the characters being the characters, not telling jokes to the camera. And to me, too, uh, watching the film, I, I personally, the standout for me was Henry Cavill and the way that he just owned every scene he was in. And I felt like he stole every scene he was in. <laughs> I mean, he would just walk into the room, say a couple things, and then walk out. And he he just, the presence that he has, and it's not because he's Superman, but he, to me, I was, all I could think was, this guy needs to be the next Bond. This is your next Bond. Daniel Craig has, you know, maybe one more, and, and this is the guy who could take up that mantle and kind of, pick up where they've left off because he can be rough and tumble and we've seen that he can be serious but he could also be that kind of smart ass that we kind of miss sometimes about you know the Craig Bond I I feel like this he could and not in a bad way because I don't really love Roger Moore's films except maybe The Spy Who Loved Me but he could be the Roger Moore to Craig's Connery Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. or basically he could be the Connery to Craig's original you know Mm. that's how good I felt like he was in this film he came off as a 21st century Connery to me and I loved that I just I loved that he owned that and um yeah I mean Arnie Hammer was great um you know I love that he is kind of that big huge he's like what six five yeah so he towers over everyone in this film and then uh, I love Vivekander. I thought she was excellent as Gabby um, when they're wrestling. Uh, the way that she plays the whole scene, too, where she basically informs on the two boys, which she's been playing the whole time. I loved that. Um, you know, and uh, then having Jared Harris from Mad Men fame and Hugh Grant as, um, you know, the, the, the two bosses. 
uh, I just, I really, really liked. So I, I felt like this movie ran and did so well because they cast so perfectly. Um, and I, I've read some reviews where the, the casting was, and they thought it wasn't charismatic, but I don't know what film they were watching because it wasn't <laughs> this one. Uh, maybe they had stumbled into, I don't know, some sort of Twilight film or something. I, who knows? Um, but yeah, to me, this worked, and, and it be, I, I felt like it, it, it was in that groove, like you were talking about, Norm. Um, and this is different because, you know, um, Bond these days has taken on a very serious tone um and especially with casino royale dealing with the terrorism uh really pitting bond against the 21st century and this is firmly entrenched in the world of the 60s and i wondered how that would work and so for you guys how does um this period piece spy film kind of work today and We've got, you know, the the music and the costumes, and what I loved is kind of this sepia-toned spy film from the very first shot. Like, there is this kind of, like, sepia-tone to the, the look of the film, so it even just looks old. I don't know. What did you think, Alice? In terms of its style, in terms of its production design, um, the costumes by Joanna Johnson, who has a very, very pedigreed... Uh, resume um, is amazing. I, the the cars, the clothes, the jewelry, the vintage Versace—you know everything. It, it, I mean, it's almost more style than substance in some cases. Uh, but that's really what I think. In addition to some of the key performances, really wowed me. Even to the little details of um, Gabby's pajamas being rolled up to different mm, lengths. Yes. You know that kind of really attention. You know they have all of those House of Holland sunglasses. I mean, I grew up watching Elsa Clinch um, Saturday mornings instead of Saturday morning cartoons. So fashion's been a big part of my life. <laughs> I don't wear it necessarily. Can't afford it. Uh, but I loved okay. the production I mean. <laughs> design. Loved it. No, I have to echo what Alice is saying. I mean, the one thing that is really probably one of the main characters in this movie is the period. Because being in production myself, if you have to nail something, you have to nail it all the way. And if you're going to do a 60s period piece, you have to go all the way. There is no in-between. Even to the point where you're making or taking a risk in terms of disconnecting with your audience because if there's one thing that guys love about spy movies, it's tech. And you're dealing with very antiquated tech here. You're dealing with bugs that look like literally the size of cockroaches, but they're supposed to be hidden in certain places where you can't see them. You're dealing with um, basically um, radioactive um, wave detectors that have essentially kind of like a miniaturized coat hanger that's spinning on an engine. But that's what the tech looked like in the 1960s. I mean, if you go all the way back to, again, the quintessential James Bond film for me, Goldfinger, he had a bug that fit onto a larger bug, and when I say bug, tracking bug, that looked like a giant cigarette case and a miniaturized cigarette case that fit into your shoe. I mean, you're getting to the point where it's so 60s kitsch that you're crossing over into Get Smart, and they're walking that really fine line. But it's done so with such reverence that 
it doesn't flip to that Austin Powers type of flavor to it. So from the cars to the fashion to just even the setting, because you're dealing with post-World War II, the height of the, the U.S. and Russian Cold War dynamic, you're, you're dealing with a lot of that part of history. And being able to embrace that the way they did legitimized why this film for me works because if you're going to do a recreationist version of uncle you have to do it in the period where it was most successful and i don't think that if they took it to a modernistic approach it would have done so well because part of the reason why it was so great is because we're going back to that era of history when it came out and not just when it came out but when it came out in the period it was actually in the birth and the pretty much the growth of the the U.S. Soviet tension, and I, I think that was really smart. I thought it was interesting. Wasn't the last Bond film? Wasn't one of the big things people said about it? Oh, this is a Bond film that's more like the Bond films of the '60s. And when I went and watched that movie, I was like, "You people are smoking crack," because that's <laughs> nothing like the movie, the Bond movies from the '60s. And then I go and watch this film, and even though it, it it's definitely a modern film, it's a Guy Ritchie film, it had more connection to me, as you guys are so eloquently pointing out, to those older Bond films than that last Daniel Craig movie did, for sure. I, I think that if you're going to reboot, reinvent, remake something... Um, I'm a big fan of making bold choices. So we could all do another show or multiple shows about the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies and, and the things that we liked and the things that we didn't like. One of the things that I appreciated about it, though, uh, from the first movie, is that when you establish this new world, all bets are off and nobody is safe. And if you're going to do something bold like blow up Vulcan, you can blow up Vulcan. And then that becomes a thing for the story. And you realize, oh, well, if Vulcans weren't safe, who else isn't safe? And now the, 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 um, the drama gets heightened because of that. So with Uncle, I felt like if you were going to make a modern version of it, first of all, it would feel weird to me because I don't want to see Napoleon Solo looking up things on Google. It just mm -hmm. wouldn't feel right. And one of the fun things about uncle to me was pretty much in every episode napoleon and Ilya, one of them would have to become somebody else you know and that's a very easy thing for a bad guy to crack in about 20 seconds <laughs> now nowadays yeah. you know um but back then it wasn't so you kind of got to go along with the fun of them um uh, it, you know, slipping one by the, the bad guys and pretending to be, oh, maybe somebody who, who is dead and has just, you know, miraculously been found. This person was lost at sea and now he's back. And Napoleon gets to take on that guise for a little bit. Um, so I think that by setting it in 1963, the year before the Man from Uncle TV series starts and before we have all the establishment of Uncle, we get to make some bold and interesting choices and still pay homage to the original. If it had been 50 years later, I think they would have been trapped um, by trying to make it fit too neatly into the modern world. Um, and I kind of like spy movies where I feel like the tech can't just get them out of a situation. 
Now, with that said, Norman, I'm glad you brought up all the gadget porn in this movie because, <laughs> my God, was there some great gadget porn in this movie. I love that. We're talking bugs that are huge, and there's a great scene of them tossing the bugs back and forth yeah. oh, that with was each awesome. other. Awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. oh. These, um, yeah. our American. Right. Caught up in, yeah, yeah. Caught up in laser. <laughs> And very low tech. <laughs> and uh, there are gadgets in this, so not just the the Uncle Special carbine that we see at the end, which is a very very close homage to what we saw on the TV show, um, but things like uh, uh, the listening device, which looks a lot like a device they used on the original Man from Uncle. Um, so a lot of that stuff really worked for me to firmly plant it and give this give this movie a sense of identity and time and place. Matthew, as you brought up, not only do we start out with that kind of sepia newsreel look, but it takes a little time for the film grain to go away and before we totally switch to a modern camera. Um, So I I like that we see that, that we feel like, oh, that's not Henry Cavill walking into a scene. That's Napoleon Solo, who we're just sort of catching in a glimpse at Checkpoint Charlie in 1963. Um, so it really, really sold that time period for me. And it's gorgeous to look at. I came home and thought, you know what? I need to do some redecorating in here. I don't have nearly enough 60s stuff um, in, my, <laughs> yeah. in, in my building from 1965 that has original fixtures. Still not 60s enough. So I need to next, fix that. Next time we come to the club, gentlemen, I expect to see you all in suits. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did exactly. pomade my hair for you, Alice. So, yeah, uh, that's about as good as I could do. So for the guys, uh, I know that like cars and boats and taxes is the porn of the day. But I have to say the one scene that really took me out of the world that they had built was the car chase scene where you almost have the scene from the Batman movie where he pulls the tarp off the one car and then he pulls the top off the other cage-like all-terrain vehicle. Um, For me, that whole scene and then the chase using that all-terrain vehicle sort of took me out of the 60s feel. Um, And I didn't enjoy that scene so much. And it went on too long for me in addition. But what did you guys, what was your reaction to that usage? You know, when I I saw that, I was like, I saw that and it was like, this must be the most high tech version of a buggy that money can (laughs) buy. Because that whole family, I mean, it was like, if you're going to get, you know, a, a super powered, I mean, a villainous super powered family with super tech and just can spend money like it was water. Sure, I think that something like that would probably work because it's it's not so far out of the realm of possibility for that thing to have been invented, but I would like to have, have seen it in a little bit more of, uh, I don't know, I guess more authenticity of its architecture. It looked a little too modern, maybe, but I don't know, it's tough. It's tough. And I, I think the one thing that, it's hard to strike a balance with in a movie like this is is how far they can push future tech, the bleeding edge of like 1963. I think they did a really good job with the smaller stuff like the, you know, the, the carbon laser <laughs> fence cutting instrument, which I thought was yes. really cool. I thought it was um, a lot of like a lot of the small things like the bugging devices, the, the microphones, the um, yeah, just any of the smaller handheld things. But when, you know, I was thinking like, well, 
are they going to pull a sub out here? Because I really would like to see a sub. And they did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I... I I really liked more of Kuryakin doing his motor ch- motorcycle chase part of it than the, the Tumblr part of it because um, it just seemed more appropriate to me. I don't know. It's it just it was cooler, I guess. Motorcycles in 1960s are cooler. Is this a good time to mention that today's talk is full of spoilers? By the way, because yeah, you know. oh yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, We're just isn't that this thing known? Rotten. I mean, <laughs> yeah, brought like to you that. by today's spoilers. So, so dune buggies are certainly older than the man from Uncle, um, but I agree with you that the design of it felt a little Batman Tumblr ish. You know, it was a little too modern. Actually, kind of like uh, Picard's dune buggy. Uh, oh, you said it. Yeah. I was thinking it, and you said it. I, like, I just oh, brought us all down, right? Oh. Right? Yeah, yeah. You had to go there, I did, John. I did. Yeah, you were welcome in the 602, and then you brought up Ruby, Nemesis. Ruby, another round of <laughs> And it will never be spoken of again. Um, wow. Ixnay on the... Icard pay Uggy Bay. Right, right. So, yeah, I kind of would have liked to have seen that dumbed down a little bit, retrofied a little bit more. I, I don't mind that he was in a vehicle, um, but I thought the Elia stuff was more effective. And, and my gosh, the way that Elia gets out of that, <laughs> it's just, he's great. He's great. Yeah, he, he is better in that scene than the stuff with Napoleon. But, you know, a eh, minor quibble. Sure, sure. I'm going to go off topic here for a second. I, it's just because I'm, I'm really curious for, for Alice and, and, and for John to, to really think about this question. What did you think about the invented material, the backstory for the two characters? Now, are you talking about in the, um, are you talking about the, 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 what we see in the dossiers at the end? Yeah, like the, no, the treasure hunter, Napoleon Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's kind of like the, um, the little history that we actually get from Kuryakin, but I think they actually invented more for Napoleon Solo, as far as I remember, because I don't remember him being this, you know, he, he didn't. Thief. Yeah, a thief, yeah, yeah. A, a, a super thief. Yeah. And uh, all that, that kind of like, he was kind of like the, um, he was the other side of the coin for James Bond. You know, if he didn't get brought into the CIA, he would have been rogue. Yeah. You know, yeah, for the highest He was the Thomas player. Crown affair. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um. When you take something like The Man from Uncle as opposed to something like, oh, Star Trek, <laughs> which we'll mention again and again, um, you don't have all the baggage that a show like Star Trek brings with it. Now, mm. the original series didn't have an origin or an ending for that matter. You, you just are thrown down right in the middle of the action because that's the way 60s TV was done. And. The Man from Uncle was done the same way. You just pick up little pieces here and there of who these guys were before they ended up where they are. But not a whole lot. So I appreciate the idea that if you're going to not rewrite, but tweak the biography a bit, um, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Because I have no problem taking that and extrapolating and saying, okay, these are then the characters that end up doing the other things that I've seen them do if I go back Mm -hmm. to the original series. Um, I'm going to give you a huge spoiler right now because I think it's relevant. Um, You know, uh, uh, Matthew, you and Norman and I talked about um, the first Daniel Craig movie, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and we're going to finish up 
with um, Spectre. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, you reset Bond at the end of Skyfall with all the stuff that we've learned about Bond in the past. And mm-hmm. we say, okay, well, now he's back to M being a guy, and now he's back to that office with the padded wall, and we saw where the car came from, and all these other things. I have no problem then saying that guy's next assignment is Dr. No. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. And it's the same way with this, with Uncle. Even though we sort of reinvented the backstory and, and rebooted the, the story of what brought these guys together, um, I have no problem with saying, okay, their next mission is the Vulcan Affair, you know, the, the first episode of, of The Man from Uncle. The Vulcan Affair doesn't play out the same way because, again, it's not 1964 TV. This is a movie, and it's made in 2015. But I can connect the dots, even if I'm maybe drawing some wavy lines in there, too. I can still connect the dots. Um, So giving them a a richer and maybe a rougher, a little different backstory, I'm okay with that. I agree with John, especially on the point about Napoleon Solo, because his backstory of being this amazing international thief helps sell you on his ability to do these other things, like take on other personalities. You know, he's good with his hands. <laughs> um, and that kind of stuff. Um uh, Ilya Kurokin's, on the other hand, works for me. It just doesn't work for me as well. And probably, again, one of the minor nitpicky things for me with his character is the the fist clenching, um, mm-hmm. the close up on his hand when he's about to have his explosive reaction to the mention of his father or Siberia or whatever. That was that was a little across the line for me and frankly reminded me of watching Korean dramas. Um, But I agree with John that the inventing of the backstories helps, I think, Guy Ritchie in terms of storytelling going forward, if he gets to make a second or third film, that it gives him a little meat to work with and perhaps some direction for future stories. So it really didn't bother me. I, you know, just, you know, fell into the groove and I bought it. I really loved, you know, Alice, you were talking about the chasing at the end. The thing that I loved was the scene where they have broken out of the um, the factory that they've broken into. Oh, yes. And they're being chased out and they jump out because they're going to hit the water and they both hit instead. Not water, but they hit the dock, <laughs> which is fantastically hilarious. It I, was. I mean, saw it twice and laughed both times. <laughs> Um, and then Solo gets knocked off the boat that they're on, and Kiriakin is just racing around in this water in circles, and Solo gets in a truck that has a bottle of wine there, a bottle of Rufino. I've mm-hmm. been to the Rufino um, winery in Italy, so I was very happy to see that. Uh, he, he's eating a sandwich there, and he's just watching, and, and it's the music that they're using there. It's just perfect, and it's a great character moment because Solo doesn't say anything. He just is kind of reacting, and he's just taking a breath, having a sandwich, having some red wine as a good Italian would do. And then as, you know, Kiriakin's boat's been blown up and he's floating down into the water about to die, he drives the truck on top of the boat and sinks the boat 
and saves Kiryakin. I just, the whole scene, it worked because I felt like the music that they chose, um, I mean, we've got, the movie starts off with Roberta Flack. It's got, um, it's got Nina Simone. Uh, it's got uh, the wonderful score. I have to say, Daniel Pemberton score is just it adds mm-hmm. so much to all the scenes. Louis Prima because is in it, there. yeah, it feels like the '60s. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's so good, and so I, I am definitely feeling the groove in this movie, and it's a good groove. I want to keep on grooving. Um, I, I saw a tweet today from somebody and they were like i just want to see the man from uncle like eight more times (laughs) you know and it it just it it, i like coming out of a movie feeling good it just doesn't happen all that much and this movie does it and i I wanted to ask you guys about because you know you're setting up a an origin story basically for this team especially for people who don't know it and it's a it's an interesting idea having the uh, American and Russians join forces and then the British and you know it's like a nice triad. I I kind of liked that idea just with this story because the thought that these two opposing forces, you know, somebody like Russia and America would come together because there's an evil so bad that even they can agree that it has to be stopped and the only way to do it is together. You know, in our polarized culture, especially here in America, what a nice message as we're hitting election season. Yeah. I Well, I, all right. So I, I want to go back to something before we address that real quick, because you, you brought up a, a scene that I love, which is a scene in the truck. There's a very similar moment in the original Man from Uncle, the Dippy Blonde affair. And Ilya is getting his butt kicked. And uh, Napoleon would rather uh, make out with the girl. And maybe that's why I was always a Napoleon fan. <laughs> but um, um, so there are, you know, little things like that spread throughout the movie where you go, uh-huh, yep, they did their homework. Now I get it. Um, the thing about this being uh, a Cold War story and the U.S. and Russia, bitter enemies working together, um, and whether or not that has relevance today I think that, you know, Man from Uncle isn't Star Trek in the respect that it wasn't trying to make big, bold, uh, difficult statements for us to, to grasp and grapple with, uh, you, you know, days and weeks and months after seeing an episode. Um, Man from Uncle wasn't a show that would try to challenge your beliefs or, or your prejudices or things like that. Man from Uncle was a lot of fun, first and foremost. And if you if you grok the spy genre and the espionage stories, then you'll get into the show. That said, the underlying thing there that you pick up, just if you were a kid in the 60s watching the show, even as a kid in the 80s, before Glasnost, before Perestroika, and before the wall fell down, you would go, oh, okay, um, Russia isn't a thing that is to be feared necessarily. Uh, the, these are people, and Ilya Kuryakin is a guy. And if we can set aside our differences and work toward a common good, that's a good thing to be able to do. So 
I don't think the show necessarily ever then or necessarily now needs to beat you over the head with that. It's still about escapist fun, and it's still about uh, just the, the fun of espionage stories. Uh, but but if we get that, if, if we can say, like, yeah, th- these are people who put aside differences and work together, it is kind of the ultimate buddy movie, <laughs> you know? And I enjoyed this buddy movie more than I've enjoyed a lot of other buddy movies that that try to force this to, to to force you to get the idea they hate each other but now they work together so they have to get along well this you're coming from a a preset political difference where they have been indoctrinated from the earliest ages to say nope that's the enemy therefore the enemy is wrong and uh, you cannot get along with them it, it's a good thing to hear I don't think it's necessarily um, critical to uh, uh, to enjoying the story or critical to making it relevant. You know, when I was watching this, one of the biggest things that I had probably a concern with and just because it had to do with the period, it was so good at laying out the foundation of the the tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and how that stemmed from pretty much like the end of World War II. There was a secret meeting. Stalin wasn't involved. Uh, it had to do with controlling the nuclear arms evolution between basically the two greatest superpowers that survived um, World War II, and, and that would be the United States and Russia because Germany was completely out of the picture. Now, the best way to unite the two most powerful nations on Earth is to throw back the greatest evil on the face of the Earth, and that would be the Nazi regime. Right? Yeah, you just make them face Nazis again. Exactly. Kind of like Indiana Jones. Throw Nazis into the equation, and they immediately become bad guy number one without a doubt. Without a doubt, because that's that's basically who the U.S. and the Russians and the Brits were fighting against in basically 20 years prior to this, right? So... Why not? I mean, it's it's not like the uh, it's not like the the scars have healed over in twenty years, especially with the arms race that was going on. So, I think it made perfect sense to throw, you know, um, a little bit of the fascist Italian and a little bit of the German Nazi Party threat back together again because nothing is better storytelling in terms of good guys versus bad guys than the Axis versus the Allies, especially when it comes to 1960s genre. So. Yeah, when was... they say they're getting the gang back together, you don't necessarily think of the fascist regimes. Yeah. I mean, really, all you <laughs> but, needed hey. was kind of like a Japanese spy like to come in there and and be a foil in the mix somewhere, and maybe we'll get that because the next movie, maybe it'll be 1964. But I always felt that as, as soon as you throw a swastika into the mix, boom, there you go, instant bad guy, and you can focus all your attention on him. But going back to another point we were making, does this still resonate and I'm, I'm sorry, John, I'm actually stealing kind of one of your lines. Does no, this do resonate with an audience of today? Does the Cold War mean anything anymore? Um, again, the Glasnost and Perestroika that was firmly rooted in the 80s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then the healing after that. But now, when an audience of, say, 18 to 25s, the target market for a movie like this, when they watch a film, what do they get out of it aside from Henry Cavill and Army Hammer being gorgeous and... You know, Elisa Vikander, and I'm sorry, I forget the actress's other name. The, the, don't you dare forget gorgeous. Elizabeth Debicki. That's Elizabeth Okay, Debicki. yes. All right. All right. <laughs> right. For them being gorgeous, and they all do greatly in their roles. And then Hugh Grant is Waverly. I mean, everyone does a really great job. Um, you know, uh, 
it's directed well, it's produced well, all that stuff. It's all there. But is the connection there? Because you have it sandwiched between Mission Impossible, which is a fantastic modern spy piece, and then the upcoming Spectre, which is the, which is the anticipated modern spy piece. Where does this fit in? Does it still work? And no matter how good it is, does making the decision to keep this so period quality impeccable resonate? Is that a risk or is that a benefit? For me, growing up with all this, it was a benefit because I can go back to that. I could be like, you know what? I remember all of these great, I guess it would be competitions between whoever a U.S. character was or a Russian character was because that was, that's just built into the, to the DNA of 1960-ish to 1980-ish when we all grew up. It's easy to, to latch onto something like that because it's, it's just a vocabulary that we're used to. Whatever the UAS is doing, the Russians are doing better. Rocky IV is probably the best, most over-the-top example of it because no matter how awesome Rocky is, the Russians are better in terms of breeding and technology and steroid use and whatever. You know, Hunt for Red October, no matter how awesome the Dallas is and uh, the USS Dallas and, uh, and Jack Ryan and all that, Ramius was always better. He has the better tech. So that's just, again, that's how we grew up, and I just don't see that translating as well through this movie, which made me concerned about will it get another shot if it's not understood that way. I, I'm going to have to say I don't think it matters. One, I have to say, Matthew, I love you for always thinking of, like, the bigger happy picture. I got to say, like, I love you for that. Thank Um, you. But I mean... I'm going to take it as a compliment. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean it as one. Um, You know, it's like West Side Story for spies, guy. I mean, the concept of (laughs) two people coming from disparate families who fall in love and have to do something together. I mean, that's a story that's a hell of a lot older than the U.S. versus Russia. It's a hell of a lot older than the U.S. versus Nazis. So I think what was more important for Guy Ritchie to do with this film is, as as has been mentioned on this podcast, is to nail the coolness. Because honestly, that's what 18 to 25-year-olds relate to. They don't relate to, or I think most of them, you know, the general milieu of 18-year-olds aren't super concerned about the political state of the world today. They want to see hot girls and cool guys and all of that stuff. And I, in, in that vein, that movie has it in spades. So whether or not they're appropriately telling the history of, you know, U.S. relations with Russia, I just don't think it matters. Well, that's I not don't. that's not really what I'm getting at. I'm getting at it. Will it warrant a second viewing? Oh, I think it will. Yeah. I think it yeah. will. And not, again, because of anything other than the fact it's hot girls and hot guys and cool cars and a funny story and all of that kind of stuff. I think that's what's going to get people in the movie theaters a second time. I think that this movie, too, has a really interesting thing in that for a majority of people, um, say 18 to 24, obviously, this kind of just feels like a new property. It's not something that they've ever heard of. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's facing the same kind of issue that any, you know, new film 
is facing, like a Tomorrowland or anything else. It's 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 trying to market itself to today's audience, and it just needs to do that successfully. And you know, um, looking at the box office results, it's number three, unfortunately, this last weekend, which is is disappointing um, to see. But that's not bad. Um, and I, I think that this is going to be one of those films where it's going to be very important that if you liked the movie, that word of mouth is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. To get that out there, say you enjoyed it and get other people to go with you. Bring friends. Bring five friends. Help bring your whole church <laughs> or your synagogue <laughs> yeah. or your, you know, your uh, rotary club or whatever. Uh, you know, Get people out there to see this movie because you're not going to get more diversity in film or, or, or different genres or I mean it's been a while I feel like that we've since we've had a really good you know 60s era type spy movie like this um it, it at least that I can think of and maybe I'm wrong I don't know John were you well thinking I of mean something? We, we've had a long period of the dark gritty version of something mm. and, and and for good reason what do you mean, John? I don't understand. Oh my, oh my God, it's Batman. Um, but, it's, um, but it is for good reason. Those stories needed to be told a different way. And we had you know, uh, Superman the movie, which was great, and it reinvented Superman for an audience in 1978. But then you got to Superman 3, and then you got yes. to Superman 4. And it was time for... It was time for superhero movies to be something different. And Tim Burton kind of kicked that off because everybody said, what, Michael Keaton? He can't play Batman. Batman's Adam West. But then you got to see Michael Keaton play a guy who was off his rocker as Batman. And then you take it another step and then you get to see Christian Bale. And, you you know, but we've had a lot of that. We've really had a lot of that. And even with the spy movies, okay, the pendulum swung one way, and we had Roger Moore. And then it swung way to the other side, and we've got Daniel Craig. And I love them both for different reasons. But in the same way that The Man from Uncle in the mid-60s was the light-hearted, fun version of, well, the actual Cold War, <laughs> but then also kind of the lighter living room friendly version of James Bond this movie is kind of doing the same thing it's counter programming it's counter programming for movies like the Daniel Craig Bond movies or Mission Impossible which those movies are great well some of them are great um but you're going there because Mission Impossible it, you hold on to the edge of your seat because Tom Cruise is holding on to the edge of an airplane this movie is more like, huh, I'd like to hang out with Napoleon and Ilya for a while, <laughs> you know? So I I hope that that, I hope that this movie finds a place because of that, that it is the, um, it, it is the, uh, the, the humorous without being jokey version of that world. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons I hope we get more of it. Because Spectre's going to come out and Spectre is going to be dead serious. And it'll be a great movie, I hope, I think. Um, but I also like to have something like Uncle to kind of counterbalance that a bit. I think that's a good time to ask you guys, uh, you know, what would you rate this movie? And would you, 
then, as we've talked about, kind of encourage people to go see this in, in the theater, uh, especially, hey, in the next few weekends. What do you guys think, Alice? Uh, I definitely recommend it for all of its coolness, for all of its very clever writing uh, and fun. Uh, I think that's the most fun I've had a movie or in the movie theater in a long time. And I, I paid matinee price and I would have happily paid full price for that movie. And I am not going to make the calamitous error uh, by not giving this film four out of five House of Holland sunglasses. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Norm? I love this movie so much because, number one, it was fun. And sometimes we have to remember that that's what the movies are about. It's about going to a completely different place, a completely different time, a completely different mindset, and just enjoying yourself away from where you are and get transported into this fantastical place, whether it's here, there, tomorrow, in the past. And I think that Guy Ritchie did a really great job at understanding what that time period meant, what it meant to the genre, and how to convey that in a way that, I agree, Alice, it's super cool. It's super good-looking. It's super dynamic. And maybe it is the introduction back to a younger audience to, hey, you know what? This is what cool really was, you know, in, in a very modern, um, very polished period way. So, And we were dancing around. We couldn't really quite describe Henry Cavill as Napoleon Solo. And I'm going to pull the greatest pun out of thin air because... This is for you, Will Wynn, because I want you to groan with just complete disdain for this pun. But is it Henry Cavill or is it Henry Cavalier? Oh, 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 well played, Norman. I if love I it. may, if I may. Thank you very John's, much. John's writing that one down. He's yeah. going to use it in the next conversation about Man from Uncle. <laughs> no, I, I, loved, I loved it. I loved everything about Uncle. It, it hit all the marks for me. I thought it was fun, sleek, stylish, you know, the kind of stuff that they throw in a marketing junket. And for me, I would probably have to rate this probably four and a half Russian, not U.S., bugs. <laughs> good call there. Better yeah, tech. Better, mm, tech. better tech. Um, I, so I have to say, first of all, um, I am taking a group of people to, uh, to see the late show Thursday night at the Chinese Theater. IMAX um, because yeah it, it like you said Alice it, it deserves full price you know I want to support this movie I bought the soundtrack album um, I, I want the word of mouth to continue to spread because it needs it it really does and and it, it hurts me it pains me that it's not doing better than it is um, it, to me this is a rare reboot remake reimagination however you want to put it that really straddles that line between giving something for the old fans to enjoy, but then being its own thing and being accessible to a new audience. That's a hard thing to pull off. And, and this does. I mentioned a couple of the things that I liked that were throwbacks of the old show. Um, and, and I just want to name a couple more because I think they're really fun. Um, it, you know, you always had plot lines about mad scientists and nuclear weapons and former not Nazis taking over the world. Um, Nazis. There was all, particularly the early episodes, there was always an innocent 
there is always somebody who is kind of trapped in the middle who didn't belong there in the world of espionage. And they played with that and they turned it on its ear in this movie. Um, and then just the character traits, the idea that Napoleon was the guy who loved the ladies and Ilya was the guy who was so focused on the mission he didn't want to get distracted by the ladies. Um, and there is a scene that I absolutely laughed out loud, uh, and I'm sure you all appreciated it. Um, in watching the original series, Man from Uncle, one of the things that always kind of you have to take with a big grain of salt is that everybody everywhere is a spy all the time. It doesn't matter where they, they can be in New York, they can be in Rome, they can be wherever. And they just live in this fake world, this fantasy world where everything and everybody and every, every moment that they have is all about being a spy. And I'm like, come on, you can't just know. Can these guys exist in the real world for once? In this movie, when you've got Solo and Kiriakon sitting at a table at a cafe... And the CIA chief says, well, we're going to leave you here to get <laughs> yes. to know each other. And everybody at the cafe gets up and leaves because it's they're awesome. all spies. I absolutely oh, it so died. It, it was, was a so clever, good. it was a really clever scene. And it really made me think of the original series. Because, again, it played with that idea and twisted it and, and just planted it on its ear. Um, so, yes, I, I love this movie. I'm going to give it four out of five U.S. not Russian bugs, Norman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well played, I'm sir. Well let played. You guys, fight outside because Ruby does not like when people smash up the chairs. Um, God, I, you know, when we talk, we keep talking about the idea of fun, and and I think if people listen to this show long enough, they they do know that Alice. Yes, I I try to look for something deeper in in everything that I watch. But I also do enjoy a good time at the at the movies, and um, sometimes I can just let that go. and And this movie, I think it did. It kind of blew me away with the way that it was able to kind of bring me into the '60s, plant me into this ridiculous spy world where the U.S. and, and the Russians would join forces to fight Nazis. Um, <laughs> which I like the way you say that, John, because it makes me feel like I'm ordering Nazis shows at a bowling alley um and so you know i just i love the the feel of this movie and the fun of it and again like i said you know for me henry cavill just stole the show as napoleon and it was so much fun the way that these guys um were playing i I felt like they were having a good time in the movie and you know that's what summer blockbuster movies are supposed to be like so Yeah, grab your wife, grab your dog, grab your family, grab your friends, go see this movie because it deserves to be seen and it deserves to have more of them. You know, I was at the movie theater and I heard a gentleman talking and he said, man, I really love that movie. I can't wait for the sequel. In fact, I hope I get to, I I might go see if they have, you know, a later showing tonight, you know, so that's the kind of thing that I want to hear about this film. And I I hope that you as the audience will give it a chance um, because it is four out of five strangely they still had u-boat subs i i didn't know the nazis still had u-boats around but uh, nazis nazis yeah Yeah, nazi u-boat subs Uh, this is it really is a great time and um i can't wait to kind of see what they do next and in fact you know i i think that this is 
even more successful for me than Guy Ritchie's take on Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. His his first Sherlock Holmes, which I really enjoy the first one. It's the second one that I didn't enjoy so much. So I'm hoping that uh, if he gets the opportunity to do another one, again, it is going to be more about, I think, the story that will drive you in it, and, and the cool. So you have to keep those things in balance. And, um, yeah, this is... I hope the start of a beautiful friendship. I have one super like serious, selfish thing that I would love to see. It's in my headcanon, and I hope it's part of your headcanon after this as well. But because we're a Star Trek network, and because of Uncle's relationship to Star Trek, how awesome would it be to be to see a remastered or retold version of the Project Strigus affair? Oh, yeah. With Chris Pine in there in William Shatner's <laughs> role. Zachary Quinto in Nimoy's role, and to bring Bond into it, Christoph Waltz as in <gasps> Bernard Klemper's role. Oh, oh. Yes, right, John. You made That's my right. day. I just blew you your just mind. blew John's mind. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the by the way, speaking <laughs> speaking of um, <laughs> cool crossovers, I, hopefully you all notice the reference to Thunderball. So Ilya, oh. Ilya is mm-hmm. um, he goes into the men's room at the racetrack. And there are the three yeah. Italian uh, youths in there, and he uh, he loses his temper. He beats up Count Lippi. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh yes, yes. Oh, yep. gosh darn it. Yep. All right. Yep. Touche. <laughs> Mr. Champion, we will, we will foil again. <laughs> I know that, too, a movie is successful as well. And, you know, I, I go to the movies almost every time I'm, I'm going with my wife, and, and it's kind of hard, I feel like, to make her kind of chuckle out loud at something. So when she's kind of laughing at a movie when we're there, I know that it's successful. And so give this movie a shot. I hope everybody will. It's so much fun. You will not be disappointed. Um, you know, I we're going to end up taking her parents um, in, a, in a couple weekends, so we'll be going to see it again. Um, and I, I can't wait. I, I really I enjoyed this movie so much and it really is worth the time you know uh, whether you go to a matinee or you go full price go see it uh and then go see it again because you're going to want to bring your friends because they haven't seen it uh because they should have so um i am i'm really glad that we got a chance to talk about man from uncle tonight because like Tomorrowland earlier this year, I think that this is the kind of, I want to see more of this kind of stuff yeah. in Hollywood, you know? Um, so let's, let, you know, let's not just complain about films that we don't get to see. Let's go support the ones we do get to see Absolutely. that are good. And, and you guys can be a part of that. And I think everybody here at this round table tonight uh, is saying the same thing, which we want to see a sequel. It's that good. Um, so and check out the original. Check out the original. That's Man right. From Uncle. I I, um, I need to do. Yeah, that. you know, the, there's like any show that runs a hundred episodes. There are good ones. There are bad ones. But you're sold on the chemistry and the charisma of those characters. Or are you soloed on them? <laughs> oh, Norman, <laughs> back Stop. again. Wow. Stop. Oh, really got to cut you off. Seriously, Ruby, I said earlier, <laughs> cut him off. Jeez. I gave you the cut sign on the throat. That's what that means. Oh, my. Ah, gosh. Well, it is. I'm so glad we've talked about all of this. Um, guys, don't forget that you can find all of the shows at iTunes.com slash Trek FM or Trek.fm. 
Uh, we've got shows coming in the entire Star Trek universe and beyond. Uh, you will find us everywhere where you get your podcasts. Don't forget about finding us on Apple, of course, because we're having the uh, review contest right now. Uh, make sure you give us a review of the 602 Club. Uh, if you do, that written review is entered to win a $50 gift card for Amazon and the USS Vengeance from Eagle Moss. Uh, if you're not on Apple, if you're not an Apple user, you can find us everywhere. Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and of course, grab the RSS link as well. Um, really important for us here at the network, it does cost us quite a bit to produce these shows. And as you can tell from listening tonight, we have a blast putting this content out for you. It really is a passion for us. Um, I'm actually very honored to say that the 602 Club is a finalist for the Parsec Awards, um, and I was blown away. Um, you know, this show hasn't even been around a year, um, but uh, counting the supplementals, this is the 51st episode that we have done. So kind of crazy, and I really appreciate that. But if you like the content that we give you here on Trek FM and you appreciate it, I really want to encourage you to go to patreon.com slash trekfm and find out how you can support keeping all of this content coming to you. We want to keep doing this for you. We love it. Um, geez, if this could be my job, I would totally do this nonstop for you guys. Um, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. You can find out how you can donate and help us out. You can um, give as much as you want. And it's just a great way to be a part of the family. We have some current goals we're trying to reach, as well as milestone contribution levels. So you can be a part of, say, the Patreon roundtables that Will Wynn has been putting together, which has been so much fun to hear the listeners be on those shows and getting basically to podcasts like we do about Star Trek. And you've got exclusive content, producer credit, seats in the content development team, and so much more. And uh, it's been a real blessing, Patreon, not just from the monetary benefits we get for the network, but it's given me some great friends like Will Wynn and like Ken Tripp and, of course, Norman, who's been on the show. That's how we met. And so Patreon.com is a great way to be a part of our family. And i really like to say thank you to our associate producer, Ken Tripp, who keeps this show coming to each week because of his support on Patreon. I couldn't do this show without him. I really appreciate him. He's such a great guy. Um, I've got my associate producers, Norman Lau and C. Brian Jones. I love getting to do this network with them. Great guys. Um, if you want to contact us, we would love to hear your thoughts on this show or any of the other shows that we've done. So go to trek.fm slash contact. Leave us a voicemail if you want. We'd love to use that on the show sometime. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm or if you're on the website at trek.fm, the sidebar on the show page, any show page, has the link there to be able to leave a voicemail. We're on Twitter, of course, at trek.fm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm, and we also have the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group. Hope you'll join us there. Just type Babel in the search field on Facebook or click discussion on the menu bar on trek.fm. Well, we have, I've got to say, this has been an amazing panel because I have such amazing guests, and they're really what make this show. Uh, I, I just sit back and let them roll and they all have shows of their own so alice tell everybody where they can find you online and of course about educating geeks that five star podcast that people should be listening to 
Thank you for that. Yeah, Educating Geeks, uh, we talk about all things geeky also. We have a newbie on the show, so you would have been our man from Uncle Newbie. Uh, and you and Norm are going to be joining us. We're very excited for one of our last podcasts of uh, season three for us. We're going to talk about Dune. Mm, uh, Norman right. is our super fan. and of course, Halud. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you will. <laughs> and Matthew and Megan, my partner in crime over at Educating Geeks, are going to be the newbies. But anyway, you can find us at educatinggeeks.com. And you can find me pretty much anywhere on the internets. Uh, A-L-C-B-K-R is my handle on the internet. Norm, uh, tell everybody where they can find you and, uh, of course, where you are on the network as well. Well, just to kind of dovetail into what Alice was saying, when I bring uh, when I come back onto the the Educating Geek show, I will be bringing the shortening of the ways. <laughs> if anyone understands that from Dune, that's oh, a little for you. <laughs> so um, you can find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N O R M A N L A O. You can find me here on the network on Trek FM as the co-host for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. I do that along with Will Wynn, our content manager for Trek FM. You can also find me on the Babel Conference. I post there every day. You can find me stalking John Champion pretty much anywhere he is. And <laughs> Which is getting really weird. John John thought he saw you the other day yeah, with the right. hat down. He knows it was you. You'll never find me. My Russian bugs are far more superior than your U.S. tech. And uh, you can find me on Facebook on the Axonar fan group page because I'm a huge supporter of the Star Trek Axonar project, uh, along with Alec Peters as executive producer. And I am an executive producer here for the network. And I'm not sure. Uh, my, I don't think. Wait a second. Yes, I can pat myself on the back. Um, <laughs> and Ruby's going to pour well me another done. shot. So that's pretty much all I have for tonight. <laughs> Before we get, John, before you tell everybody where they can find you, I, I wanted to ask you this. Did, did any of you guys, uh, before the film started in the previews, it's one of my favorite parts of the movies, the previews when they're good, but did anyone of you see the preview for The Intern with yes. uh, Robert De Niro <laughs> and Anne Hathaway? I did not. No. Okay. There's a great scene in that trailer where she says this. How did we go from men being men like Jack Nicholas and Harrison Ford to guys like, and it shows these like hipster, you know, 20 something guys with their, you know, cardigans and their t-shirts and their corduroys or whatever. And when you were talking about cool Alice, all I could think of was that Napoleon Solo is what cool used to be. You know, that's what Robert De Niro is in that film. He's got the suit on and the tie and he looks so suave and debonair and I just, you know, I wish we kind of lived in a world sometimes where it was, I had the money, one, to wear a suit like that all the time, and it was okay. You know, it just, it made me miss, it made me nostalgic for, it made me nostalgic for the times when men used to be men, and, and, and we kind of respected them just because they wore a, a suit every day and a nice hat, you know, like... I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but it it dovetailed into the movie, and I, I'm glad that you guys saw it, too. And <laughs> I uh, cracked Alice up, apparently, with my hipster talk. Yeah, gentlemen, <laughs> uh, we have some work to do, and Alice, on behalf of all men, I apologize. Um, we'll, we'll try to do better. <laughs> <laughs> 
John, let everybody know where they can find you online and, of course, uh, about Mission. Well, uh, what I'm not eluding Norman Lau on the mean streets of Hollywood in my uh, Uncle License Plate Festoon spy car, you can find me at one easy place, missionlogpodcast.com. And then on Facebook and Twitter, Mission Log Pod. We are proud to be uh, uh, carried on the Trek FM network. It has been great for us, and um, I'm I'm just you know proud to be able to do that show, and absolutely thrilled to be able to come on and do shows like this with you guys. Well, I goodness, uh, this is one of those those nights where you just don't want it to end. But uh, before we do. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me on Instagram at MRushing. I do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine, which I love doing because it is the best Star Trek show out there. John, you'll get there one day. Um, hopefully you won't be an android at that point. <laughs> so uh, long, so long. <laughs> Uh, you can also find me doing Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books in the comics of Star Trek, also interviewing authors. It's a blast doing that show. My own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And y'all come back now, you hear? Okay.